Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the morning of May 29th, 2002, the police in Ocean City, Maryland, received a call from police in Fairfax City, Virginia. In Fairfax City, about 170 miles or 275 kilometers away from Ocean City, a woman had been reported missing. When her co-workers called in the report, they told authorities that she had gone on vacation with her boyfriend to Ocean City, but never returned. When the police tried to get in touch with her boyfriend, it turned out that he was nowhere to be found either. After a little digging, it looked as though both of them had never made it back from their vacation. Fairfax City Police explained that the couple had stayed at the Atlantis condominiums, and they had driven there in the woman's red Acura, which had a personalized license plate that read, Genie C. A detective from the Ocean City Police Department drove out to the Atlantis condos and immediately found the vehicle. It was one of the few in the parking lot, and despite there being a number of open spaces right up by the entrance to the building, this car was parked all the way at the end of the lot. In a beachside city, sand blows everywhere and seeing the sand that had collected around the base of the tires on the car indicated that it hadn't been driven for days. Inside the condo, the detectives found all of the couple's personal belongings. Their clothes, their toiletries, a camera, and there was even a laptop sitting on the table with some paperwork next to it. On the table, there were also four wine glasses indicating that the couple had guests over. Detectives found a receipt from a grocery store that looked to be items the couple had purchased upon arriving in town so they could stock the refrigerator in the unit. When he checked the fridge, all of the items on the receipt were there, so they had brought in groceries but never had a chance to use them. The detective called family members but no one had heard from the couple. He contacted other police departments and hospitals, but there was no record of anyone matching their descriptions having been injured or killed in Maryland or neighboring states. This couple seemed to have just up and vanished. This is Monsters. Erica Grace was born on February 3, 1978 in Roaring Springs, Pennsylvania to Gerald and Charlotte Grace. Gerald, who went by Mitch, was a successful contractor in the area, and with Erica being an only child, people said she wasn't spoiled, but she never lacked anything she ever needed. She was a star basketball player who excelled in academics, and that's really the only way Mitch would have it. On the basketball court, Erica knew she could dominate, but off the court she was extremely shy and didn't like breaking the rules, something that would come as a shock based on her actions later in life. When other teens had the opportunity to do some drinking, she would be the first to tell them they shouldn't be doing what they were doing. 
Being at the top of her class, she was regularly asked by other students if they could copy her homework, but she always said no. That didn't stop them, though, as they would just break into her locker and take her homework anyway. As a youth, she was petite and meek and tended to be overpowered by the more outgoing students. As a teenager, Mitch didn't think Erica was getting enough time on the court, so he moved the family to Hollidaysburg, where he built a large 10-bedroom home with an indoor basketball court. In her new school, Erica got as much time on the court as she wanted, and Mitch hired a coach to teach her independent of her school practice time. So no, not spoiled at all. Erica was in a position to go to any school she wanted on a full basketball scholarship if it wasn't for her height. She was only 5'6", which was too short as far as basketball players went, and she eventually began attending the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia on a partial basketball scholarship. While living on campus at the university, Erica began developing severe anxiety, and in an effort to maintain her near-perfect grade point average, she quit playing basketball. Removing this additional point of stress seemed to work, and she continued to excel at college. In 1999, Erica was at a bar in Fredericksburg when she met a young man named BJ. The two talked and ended up exchanging phone numbers, but nothing really came of the meeting at first. BJ wasn't really interested in getting into a relationship at the time because he was too focused on his career. Benjamin Seifert, who went by BJ, was born on October 21, 1977, in Esterville, Iowa, to Craig and Elizabeth Seifert. B.J. had one sister who was younger than him. B.J. grew up in the Midwest until he was a sophomore in high school when his family moved to Houston, Texas for his father's work. B.J. was also athletic in high school, being part of the swim team. He held a few different jobs as a teenager, but the one he seemed to like the most was when he worked for a locksmith. This gave him the skill to be able to open any lock in front of him. B.J. was a hard worker and had a desire to serve his country, so when he was a senior in high school, he decided he wanted to join the Marines. After getting high scores on his entrance test, his recruiter convinced him that a better option would be to join the Navy and go through SEAL training. In 1996, B.J. entered basic training for the Navy and then moved on to SEAL training in California. Of the 160 candidates that entered SEAL training, B.J. was one of only 18 that graduated. He was given a special award for being the top performer of his class. As other trainees were getting as much sleep as they could and drinking energy shakes to get them through each grueling day, they said that B.J. could stay up drinking until 3 a.m., get two hours of sleep, and have no problem completing a 10-mile run. After graduating SEAL training, B.J. also went through a 25-week in-depth medic training course in North Carolina. After that, B.J. was stationed in Virginia and assigned to SEAL Team 2. During his first three years in service, B.J. was a model of the perfect Navy sailor and SEAL. It was a few months after their initial meeting that B.J. ran into Erica at a party and a relationship quickly followed, and it went fast. Within weeks, the two were discussing marriage, and soon they went to Las Vegas to get married at the Silver Bell Wedding Chapel. Erica transferred her classes to a school in Virginia Beach and moved in with BJ. It was only after the wedding that BJ called his parents, who had never even met Erica, and told them that he was married. Though Erica's parents had met BJ once, the wedding came as a major shock to their family as well. 
Mitch described how he wanted to walk his daughter down the aisle, but never got the opportunity. Soon after their marriage, the Navy sent BJ to Arkansas for months, leaving Erica alone. When BJ arrived back home, Erica's anxiety had returned and she was showing signs of obsessive-compulsive disorder. One of her biggest obsessions, though, was BJ. She would fly off the handle if BJ was ten minutes late from anything. He had gone down the street with a Navy buddy, and when he didn't come right back, Erica started screaming and throwing things. Her friend tried to calm her down, but she couldn't be consoled. When BJ was sent to Alaska for cold weather training, Erica ended up showing up at the base despite it being against the rules for spouses to even know where their husbands were, let alone accompany them. BJ was in a rigorous training program for mountain and arctic warfare training which many SEALs didn't pass. It took strength and focus and BJ didn't need any distractions. Even so, he sent a coded message to Erica that told her exactly where he was and when she arrived he snuck her into his room. Of course, they were caught and BJ was reprimanded. Not long after, BJ got stationed in Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. Erica had become tired of BJ having to leave all the time due to his military service and she wanted him out. She wanted him all to herself, so BJ began leaving the base without permission and breaking other rules, telling his superiors to fuck off when he was reprimanded. Not wanting to wait for BJ to get out of the Navy the old-fashioned way, she talked him into getting himself a bad conduct discharge. After multiple infractions, a court-martial, and 90 days in the brig, BJ was given exactly what Erica wanted in August of 2000. Now they could live out their dream of opening a business and running it together so they never had to be apart. I'm sorry, did I say their dream? I meant Erica's dream. BJ wanted to get a regular job, but he couldn't because Erica would have panic attacks if he was away from her for eight hours. Erica's parents gave the couple enough money to start their own scrapbooking store in a mall in Altoona, Pennsylvania, just minutes away from Holidaysburg. Before that, though, the parents also sent the Seiferts on a two-month trip around South America. Nope, not spoiled at all. Erica would later confess that her desire to travel to South America was due to the addiction she had developed to Xanax and Valium. While on the trip, they bought a ton of both drugs and smuggled them back into the country. The store opened in April of 2001, and Erica was thrilled to be able to be around her husband nonstop to the point that she wouldn't even let him go hunting with her father for a few days. BJ was excited to go out and go hunting, but Erica said he couldn't be away from her for that long. This wasn't the only quirk that developed with the couple, though. BJ suggested that Erica get herself a gun, so he bought her a Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum, and she immediately began carrying it everywhere. Then, she and BJ both became obsessed with Adolf Hitler, with Erica later telling investigators that they agreed with Hitler's beliefs. BJ got a large swastika tattooed on his chest, just like the one you would see on Edward Norton in the movie American History X. They started collecting exotic pets, including two pythons named Bonnie and Clyde and a cobra named Hitler. Erica also became obsessed with Hooters. She had a closet filled with hundreds of pieces of Hooters clothing. Sometimes she would sell some of the merchandise online for a profit, a little side business along with their scrapbooking store. Another little side business the Seiferts got into was burglary. 
BJ, being bored with his life no longer being a Navy SEAL, he began going out and breaking into businesses as a means of excitement. His skills from his days as a locksmith would come in handy for these little excursions, which were how Erica amassed such a large collection of Hooters gear. The couple had been breaking into restaurants and stealing merchandise in the middle of the night. Let me repeat that. They were breaking into businesses and stealing stuff, but most of what they stole was Hooters merchandise. As time went on, Erica started realizing that having BJ around 24-7 wasn't the dream situation she thought it would be. She spent all of her time running the scrapbooking store, which wasn't a huge success. But with BJ there, he tended to just scare off customers. They continually had to escalate their behavior to give BJ more of a thrill. Every crime they committed quickly became not enough for him. He kept needing more and more thrills. One incident that Erica would tell investigators about happened at the end of 2001. They had bought some cocaine from a woman, but when they got back home, they found out it was just Ajax cleaner. BJ was so upset about it that he planned on killing the woman and putting her body in acid. He purchased some acid from a hardware store and put a rat into it, making sure it would work. The next day, the rat was almost completely gone. A friend of the Seifritz confirmed with investigators that she had seen him put the rat in the acid. It didn't look like he ever went through with the murder, though. On May 25, 2002, BJ and Erica headed out on the freeway to take a little vacation in Ocean City, Maryland. Erica brought Xanax and Valium with her, and she washed some Xanax down with a beer on their way to the beach. They were able to use a penthouse on the top floor of the Rainbow Condominiums, a building that was owned by a friend of Erica's father, Mitch. Once at the condo, Erica snorted more Xanax and the couple headed off to Erica's favorite restaurant, Hooters. Erica collected the tank tops that waitresses wore, which weren't for sale as merchandise. She wanted a tank top from every location, so she brought some of the other tank tops that she had to see if any of the waitresses would trade with her. While there, she asked a waitress where they should go for a good time, and the young lady suggested they go to a nightclub called Secrets. They parked their vehicle back in the parking lot of the condo and took a bus to the nightclub. As they boarded the bus, BJ realized that he didn't have exact change, so another passenger paid their fare for them. That passenger was Joshua Ford, who was on vacation with his girlfriend, Martha Crutchley, who went by Jeannie. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Joshua Ford and Jeannie Crutchley were born 19 years apart. Most people would assume that meant the man was going after a younger woman, but it was the opposite in this case. They had met in 1999 when Josh was 29 years old and Jeannie was 48. They quickly fell in love and moved in with each other in April of 2001. In October of that year, Joshua's 23-year-old niece, Kelly, who had been missing for nearly three months, was found decapitated and buried in a shallow grave in Cape Cod. Not only was her head missing, but it's been reported that her heart had been gruesomely cut out of her body. 
All this has been made worse by the fact that the murder would never be solved. The entire Ford family grieved the loss of Kelly, but by the following summer, Joshua and Jeannie decided that it was time to let go of some of their grief and go to the beach for the three-day Labor Day weekend to try to move on and have some fun. They left their home on May 25, 2002, the same day the Seiferts left their home and headed to Ocean City. Once there, they went to a local grocery store to stock their condo before going out and taking a bus down the street to a popular nightclub, Secrets. It was a 30-minute walk to the hotspot or a 5-minute drive, but since the goal was to do some drinking while there, many people opted to take the bus. After Josh paid the fare for BJ and Erica, BJ offered to buy them a drink when they made it to Secrets and the two couples began their short friendship. The club was a very popular place and there was an hour-long wait to get in. Most of the group didn't mind, but Erica was impatient as her buzz was wearing off. She ended up going around the corner where she could duck behind some cars and snort some more Xanax. Once inside, they all drank and got to know each other until closing time. Erica suggested that they all move the party to their condo where they could continue drinking and get in the hot tub. It suggested that Joshua had some marijuana at their condo and he wanted to pick it up first. While there, they must have all had a glass of wine before walking the two blocks along the beach back to the Seifert's condo at the Rainbow. The two couples got to the Rainbow at about 2.30 and began drinking and smoking marijuana. Erica, not being a fan of marijuana, was hanging out away from the others when she claimed that a brown Hooters bag she owned was gone. She began looking around for it, and when she saw her purse in the bedroom, she said that valuables were missing from inside. She claimed that there was a $10,000 canary diamond ring, her wallet, and her drugs that were all missing from her purse. This is when Erica called 911. At 3.01am on May 26th, Erica called 911 from the telephone in the bedroom of the condo. She told the operator that there were people in the house that she didn't know. She explained that her purse was missing and she thought there was going to be a robbery. The operator transferred Erica to the police dispatcher and she began explaining what was going on, but the line went dead. It's unknown why the call was cut off. Erica would later tell investigators that BJ, Joshua, and Jeannie all came into the bedroom and she hung up, but it's unclear if that was true. Investigators would question her as to why she said her purse was missing when it wasn't, only items inside were missing. At some point that evening, BJ and Erica began accusing Josh and Jeannie of stealing their belongings. It's believed that BJ used Erica's gun to threaten the other couple. He accused them of stealing and ordered them to strip off their clothes. At this point, Joshua and Jeannie had already changed into bathing suits with the intention of using the hot tub. They had never left the apartment, so it makes no sense to think that the pair were hiding anything in the clothes they were wearing. After begging their host to reconsider what they were about to do, Josh and Jeannie were able to rush into the bathroom and lock the door. Once in the bathroom, though, there was nowhere to go. Joshua tried to open the window, hoping they could climb out onto the balcony, but it didn't open. According to Erica, at that point, she ran out of the bedroom and started looking for her stuff, hoping that if she found it, it would calm BJ down and he wouldn't escalate the situation any further. She claimed that she was in the middle of her search when she heard gunshots in the bedroom and then BJ kicked in the bathroom door. 
Erica said that she ran back into the bedroom and said BJ pointed the gun at Joshua demanding to know where their stuff was. Joshua told BJ that he had served in the army and knew that he was in the Navy asking why he would do this to a fellow veteran. BJ just leaned in and said, quote, See you later, motherfucker, before shooting Joshua in the head. Erica continued the story, explaining that Joshua didn't die immediately. He was gurgling and there was blood coming out of his mouth. BJ called for her to come into the bathroom, but she refused. When he came out of the bathroom to get her, he noticed that the front of her pants were wet, and it was obvious that she had peed her pants. Then he started calling her a pussy and making fun of her. After that, Erica said that BJ went back into the bathroom and shot Jeannie but missed. Then he got closer and pointed the gun down at Jeannie's shoulder and fired, with the bullet going through her body and hitting one of her lungs. How she would have known that is anybody's guess. After killing their guests, BJ told Erica that they could have thrown the stolen items off of the balcony and told her to go outside and check, which she did. There was nothing outside. No, Erica would later tell investigators that, after more searching, everything that was supposed to be missing was found under the bed. At this point, BJ began focusing on cleaning up the scene. It seemed as if the police didn't send anyone to check on the situation from the cutoff 911 call and nobody in the building had heard the gunshots. No police ever arrived on the scene that morning. It seemed as though the Seifritz were in the clear to dispose of the bodies and pretend that nothing had happened. But how to dispose of the bodies? Well, investigators would later learn that, in 1999, before BJ had met Erica, he was hanging out at a strip club with one of the other SEALs on his team. That SEAL was having a hard time with his wife, and the two started talking about a hypothetical plan to kill her. The SEAL said it was just a joke, and they eventually moved on to talk about other things. The conversation eventually turned to what would be the best way to dispose of a body. The SEAL suggested dumping the body in the ocean, but BJ said he would dismember the body, wrap up the parts, and put them in different dumpsters in different parts of town over the course of a month. Three years later, that's exactly what BJ did. Well, almost. Again, according to Erica, she left to get black garbage bags from a Dollar Tree, which was apparently open at 4 o'clock in the morning, and after she delivered them to BJ, she waited in the living room while he cut up the bodies and wrapped the parts in plastic. In the middle of him dismembering the bodies, Erica said that BJ called her into the bathroom. He was completely naked, holding Joshua's head in one hand and Jeannie's head in the other. He was holding them out to each side and he had a full erection. He asked her to use the digital camera to take a picture for him to send to his buddies, but she refused. She also claimed that BJ had sex with Jeannie's headless corpse and asked her to cook one of Josh's legs. After she had supposedly talked BJ out of cannibalism, he packed up all of the body parts and plastic tubs they had brought with them on their trip, and BJ took a shower. It was about 6am when they headed out to place the various body parts and dumpsters around the city. They didn't have time to spread this task out over a month, and they only placed the parts in two dumpsters, across the street from each other. According to Erica, she slept in the car while BJ drove around to find adequate dumpsters. She told investigators that she never got out of the Jeep and she didn't help with the disposal of the bodies. When they got back to the condo, BJ slept for a few hours while Erica cleaned up everything in the condo besides the bathroom. When BJ woke up, he went to work on the bathroom. 
Fortunately, they had booked the condo for the entire week, so they had time to work. He scrubbed every surface, patched a hole in the bathroom wall from when he missed Jeannie, and repainted. He replaced the door to the bathroom since he had shot through the old one and kicked it in. By the time he was done, to the casual observer, the bathroom looked totally normal. According to Erica's interview by investigators, she was not involved in the killings or the disposal of the bodies and everything she did to help was because she was scared of BJ. After the bathroom was fixed up, as documented in pictures taken by themselves or other people they had met, they went out to eat, played miniature golf, and Erica got a tattoo of a cobra on her side. In all of the pictures, both of them are smiling, hugging, and kissing. It seems as if neither of them have a care in the world about the two people that were just murdered in their condo. Another thing that is noticeable in these photos is that Erica is wearing Joshua's ring on a chain around her neck. That's right, Erica, who is supposedly horrified by the murders and scared of BJ, had taken a ring from one of the murder victims and was now wearing it. In the early morning hours of May 31st, 2002, BJ and Erica decided it was time to do one of the things that was on their to-do list for their trip to Ocean City. They broke into the Hooters, the same one they had eaten at just a few days earlier, and stole a bunch of merchandise. However, this Hooters had a silent alarm, so while they were loading t-shirts, sweatshirts, hats, and racks of cigarettes that Hooters also sold into their vehicle, Ocean City police were on their way to check out the alarm. When officers Jason Hart and Freddie Howard pulled up to the restaurant, they saw a man and a woman loading Hooters merchandise into a Jeep Cherokee. Erica sat down in the passenger seat and it looked like BJ was going to jump in the vehicle and try to get away, but he realized it was too late and put his hands up. When he was approached by the officers, he asked if they could just put the stuff back. He tried to talk the officers into letting them put everything back and letting them go. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. After they handcuffed him, they found his Sig Sauer semi-automatic handgun tucked into his pants. It was fully loaded with a round already in the chamber. BJ was also wearing a shoulder holster, but it didn't have a weapon in it. When officers handcuffed Erica, they found her Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum tucked into the back of her pants, as well as a buck knife clipped to the front of her pants. Inside the vehicle was another loaded handgun in the center console. Erica began hyperventilating and told Officer Hart that she was having a panic attack and needed her medication. She asked if he would get her purse out of the vehicle and get her Xanax and her Paxil, another anti-anxiety drug. Now, the officer was under no obligation to do this, but having a calm person in custody instead of one having a panic attack likely seemed like a better option, so he found the purse and began digging through it for a bottle of Xanax and a bottle of Paxil. While digging through the purse, he found four spent 357 shell casings and one live round. Then, he found two IDs that didn't belong to either Erica or BJ Seifert. They belonged to Joshua Ford and Martha Crutchley. Sergeant Hugh Bean had just arrived on the scene, and he had just seen a missing persons flyer for the couple, so when he saw the IDs, he started digging through the purse and found both Joshua and Jeannie's social security cards and a membership card to Bally Total Fitness with Joshua's picture on it. Inside the Jeep, investigators also found zip-tie cuffs, ski masks, and gloves, which they clearly weren't using for the robberies since they weren't wearing any of it when police showed up. 
Detectives Richard Morak and Scott Bernal, who were already on the missing persons case, were notified about the discovery and when they arrived on the scene, they talked to Erica. She agreed to talk to them, but she said she had no idea who the IDs belonged to and suggested that BJ must have just found them somewhere. When it was clear that they weren't going to get anything out of the suspect, they went directly to BJ and Erica's condo in the hopes that the victims were still alive, just being held against their will. Having the IDs of two missing persons in their possession gave the police exigent circumstances to enter the condo without a warrant for the express purpose of looking for Joshua and Jeannie. They didn't find anybody inside the condo, but what they did find was two spent bullets lying out in the open on the coffee table, one of which had blood and human tissue on it. At that point, investigators easily got a warrant to do a thorough search of the condo. When they went back in for a better look, investigators found a room key for the Atlantis condos, which turned out to be specifically for Joshua and Jeannie's room. They also found a stack of photographs of BJ and Erica throughout their vacation, and some of the photos are of the Sifrits with Joshua and Jeannie. Inside the bathroom, investigators noted that the door looked brand new and the paint on the walls was fresh. They pulled out the vanity and there was a line of dried blood that had settled down between the tile in the floor and the toe kick of the vanity. When they took apart the sink drain, they found a piece of scalp with dark hair still attached to it. They found a line of blood on the wall near the vanity. They found a hole in the wall that had been spackled over which actually had gone completely through to the bedroom. In the dryer lint trap, they found more foreign hairs, tissue, and coagulated blood. They also found Joshua's palm print on the window from when he had tried to open it. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. BJ refused to talk to the detectives. He immediately asked for a lawyer, so there was pretty much no interrogation. But Erica was a completely different story. She had no problem talking to detectives because she apparently wanted to be able to pin everything on BJ. Her story of the murders had herself playing no part in them, not even helping dispose of the body parts. But Detective Bernal knew that parts of that story, if not the whole thing, was not true. They found Erica's fingerprints on the outside of the bathroom window where Erica claimed she was downstairs looking for her purse after the victims ran into the bathroom, investigators believed she was actually out on the balcony, looking in at Joshua and Jeannie, likely telling BJ where to shoot. She had also told investigators exactly what happened inside the bathroom while claiming she never went in there. She said she was pacing in the bedroom while BJ was in the bathroom, but if that's true, how did she know BJ put the gun to Joshua's head? During a second interrogation, Erica finally broke down and told the detectives where they could find the body parts. Unfortunately for investigators, the dumpsters had already been picked up and their contents had been taken to the same landfill. After searching the Sussex County landfill in Delaware, they found various body parts belonging to Joshua Ford and Jeannie Crutchley. After this, 
Erica was offered a deal to testify against BJ in exchange for just being charged with a handgun possession charge and a charge of illegally disposing of bodies. The stipulation to the deal was that she had to take a polygraph to confirm that her version of events was true. Erica agreed, but when she went to the pre-interview before the test was administered, she said for the first time that, before Joshua and Jeannie ran into the bathroom, BJ asked her what he should do and Erica said, quote, just fucking do it, clarifying to the interviewer that she meant for BJ to kill them. She said that BJ fired a shot through the door, which hit Joshua in the shoulder before kicking in the door. She also said that they both went into the bathroom and she was standing right behind BJ when he shot Joshua in the head. She also added another previously unknown detail to the story, though. She said that Jeannie was still alive, curled up in the fetal position on the floor when BJ told her to go outside and check to see if the supposedly stolen goods had been tossed off the balcony. When she came back up, BJ told her to use her knife to make sure Jeannie was dead, so Erica stabbed Jeannie twice in the side. She said that she assumed that Jeannie was already dead, but that she never checked to make sure before she stabbed her. After that, she said that BJ told her that all of the stuff she thought was stolen was actually under the bed and that he had put it there. Detectives don't believe that because when they looked under that bed, they found it only had about a half inch of clearance and none of her belongings would have fit there. In this version of her story, Erica admitted to having helped wrap up the body parts and disposing of them. Then she said they both went home and slept. When they got up, they both cleaned the bathroom together. The following day, Erica explained that they went out and checked that the dumpsters had been emptied. She told the interviewer that while they were out, BJ said to her, quote, Boy, you really did a number on her throat, meaning Jeannie. This was the first mention anywhere that Erica had cut Jeannie's throat. Erica never even took the polygraph as the deal was immediately off. Erica had just admitted to being very involved in the murders of Joshua and Jeannie. It turns out that Erica was under the impression that whatever she said could not be used against her in court, but it was only what she said during the polygraph that couldn't be used in court, so she told a more truthful story to the polygrapher during the pre-interview in an attempt to make sure she wouldn't fail the polygraph. In the process, she admitted to a bunch of crimes that were perfectly admissible in court. This might be considered a dirty tactic if police had set it up as a means of tricking Erica into confessing, but at no point was Erica told that her pre-interview would be admissible. It was sheer incompetence and arrogance that caused Erica to admit her own guilt. The original deal was tossed out and Erica was charged with first-degree murder. That would not be the only bombshell that investigators would find in this case, though. While they were investigating, two people came forward and told police they had also met BJ and Erica and they were invited back to their condo. Todd Wright was also at the Secrets nightclub when he met BJ and Erica. During the course of the evening, BJ and Erica proceeded to get wasted and BJ even vomited right at the bar. A bouncer also caught BJ trying to pick the lock on a cash machine, so he ordered the drunk couple to leave. The bar staff said that BJ seemed ready to go, but Erica became belligerent and even threatened to kill the bouncer before BJ grabbed her and pulled her out of the club. Their new friend Todd decided to leave with them. Once outside, Todd began calling a female friend and begging her to meet them at another bar. 
She didn't really want to go out, but finally gave in and met them at a place called Fishtails where the woman agreed to one drink and then said she was going home. Despite her desire to get out of the situation, she was talked into going back to BJ and Erica's condo to help BJ get Erica upstairs in her drunken state. As soon as they got up to the condo, Erica became much more alert and had no trouble unlocking the door and getting inside. Then she offered the woman a tour of the condo and began showing her some of her jewelry. Erica was surprisingly sober by this point. Then, suddenly, Erica noticed that her purse was missing and it contained an expensive diamond ring. She began to panic and started searching for the purse, getting everybody involved in the search. While searching for the purse, Todd's friend said she looked in the bathroom and she noticed that the bathroom door was off the hinges and sitting next to the opening. She also noticed a hole in the door, but wouldn't realize what it was from until later. When the purse didn't turn up, that's when Erica accused Todd and the woman of stealing it. Does any of this sound familiar? The interesting thing about this story is that it happened two days after Joshua and Jeannie were murdered. If Erica was so horrified by what had happened that night, why was she trying to make it happen again? She was obviously faking being so intoxicated to get Todd and his friend up to their condo. Then she clearly lied about her purse being missing to get BJ worked up. Based on the woman's recollection of the events, it seemed as if BJ wasn't entirely in on the plan. After they had searched all over the condo, BJ finally moved a couch cushion and found the purse. Once he did, he noticeably relaxed. The woman said that she had searched every part of that couch earlier and there was no purse there. It's believed that Erica had moved the purse around to make it seem like it had been stolen to get BJ worked up into a murder in mood. This detail made investigators wonder if Erica had actually lost the purse the first time or if that was all a setup as well. After the purse was found, the woman testified that BJ made multiple statements of the, quote, two people who had been over a few nights before. The woman was ready to go, so she took Todd home and then went home herself. The following day, she left for a 10-day vacation in Hawaii and had no idea what was going on with the strange couple she had met that night until she got back home. Of course, her testimony did no favors for Erica, making her look even more guilty, but in a way, it kind of helped BJ. It made it look like BJ was unaware of this stolen purse scam and possibly not involved in the murders at all which is what he claimed in court. The first time BJ ever spoke about the murders was at his trial. He claimed that he had no involvement with the crimes and he didn't even go to Joshua and Jeannie's condo that night. He said Erica went with them to their condo and he decided to go back to his own condo and wait for them, but once he got there, he realized that he didn't have a key, so he went out to their car and fell asleep. He claimed that he slept out in the car all night and that Erica must have brought Josh and Jeannie back to the rainbow where she murdered them both. This made investigators wonder, however, why there were four wine glasses out at Joshua and Jeannie's condo. BJ claimed he only helped her dismember and dispose of the bodies. At his trial, prosecutors provided evidence that the murder weapon belonged to the Seifritz and that the blood and tissue found at the scene, as well as the body parts found in the landfill, belonged to Joshua Ford and Jeannie Crutchley. They also provided the testimony of the woman who was with Todd Wright. Though her story made Erica look like the mastermind, BJ was still storming around the condo with a gun and talking about ridding the earth of bad people, 
but none of the evidence proved that BJ had actually committed the murders. When he was finally put on the stand, BJ spoke about his dedication to the seals that was torn apart by his marriage to Erica. Her mental illness caused him to destroy his dream career and took him down a path of drugs and crime. The prosecution pointed out that BJ was a trained medic, but in his version of events, he did nothing to try to save Joshua or Jeannie. He wasn't only a medic, he had gone through SEAL medic training that included a period of working as an EMT in New York City, as well as spending a month in an emergency room there. He had claimed that he was trained to view the human body as a machine and to do whatever it took to get that machine working again. Yet, according to him, Erica had come outside while he was asleep in their jeep and told them there were two dead bodies in the bathroom. Then he ran upstairs and did nothing to assess their injuries or help save their lives. The one question that the prosecutor didn't ask BJ was how it would have been possible for Erica to kick in the bathroom door with such force that the doorknob hit the wall hard enough to dent in the metal corner bead on the drywall by over an inch. It was highly unlikely that Erica would have enough weight behind her to create that kind of force. But the question was never asked, and in the end, BJ's act almost worked. B.J. Seifert was acquitted of the first-degree murder of Joshua Ford, but he was found guilty of the second-degree murder of Jeannie Crutchley. That means the jury had to believe that Erica murdered Joshua, went down 11 floors to wake up B.J. in the Jeep, then they went back upstairs where Jeannie was still in the same place and B.J. murdered Jeannie. B.J. had said in his testimony that Joshua had been killed first. So if B.J. was not involved in Joshua's murder, but was involved in Jeannie's murder, based on his story, that's the only possible scenario. A scenario that is complete and utter garbage. There's no way the murders happen that way. Even so, B.J. was sentenced to 38 years for the second-degree murder charge. Erica's trial began after B.J.'s, and she was faced with even more evidence that pointed toward her. The murder weapon belonged to her, and testimony showed that she had actually instigated the murder when she created the stolen purse ruse. She was the one that had the victim's IDs and social security cards in her possession. The prosecution showed the pictures of Erica out, eating, laughing, playing mini-golf, and even getting a tattoo the day after the murders. Not a care in the world. She even got her tattoo in the exact same spot she claimed to have stabbed Jeannie, like some sort of commemorative trophy. The prosecution also presented the pictures that showed Erica with Joshua's ring on a chain around her neck in the days after the murder. This time, the jury found Erica Seifert guilty of the first-degree murder of Joshua Ford and the second-degree murder of Jeannie Crutchley. She was sentenced to life in prison, plus 20 years. Both BJ and Erica filed multiple appeals, which were all denied. BJ was trying to get a new trial, which seems insane since he managed to skate on the murder charge for Joshua. It seems like a new trial would likely see him found guilty of both murders, but it doesn't matter because that appeal was denied. BJ filed for divorce in March of 2010. His first parole eligibility was denied in 2022. But if he's not released on parole, he'll be released in 2030. Erica's first parole eligibility is in 2024. BJ and Erica Seifred seemed to be on the straight and narrow until they met each other. It seemed that they amplified each other's desire to carry out evil and let it escalate to deadly levels. 
They could have had a successful life together, but instead, they chose to become monsters. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter, or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.